Are you struggling to find the right professional talent for your project? Are you working with a limited budget? We are so excited about our next sponsor, Casting Networks. I have personally used Casting Networks to release a number of projects for free to the industry's largest network of professional performers for my commercial work and for my very first short film, Strange Thing. Creators can manage submissions, schedule auditions, request and review self-tapes, and book top talent for their projects all in one place all for free. On Casting Networks, you can create an account and send your casting call to thousands of professional talent. So join Casting Networks, the industry's preferred casting platform where more than 1.2 million performers have scheduled over 14 million auditions. That's a lot of auditions. Visit www.castingnetworks.com movies to create an account for free today. You know, making movies is hard. Making movies is hard. Welcome. This is the podcast about the struggle of being an independent filmmaker. I'm Mark Purcell, the founding host of the podcast, and I'm a sci-fi horror filmmaker, and my first feature film, The Alterate, is out now. I can't believe I can say this. It's on digital and DVD for everyone to enjoy. So go over to Apple TV or any place that you can rent or buy movies digitally. I think you could do it in PlayStation and Xbox in Canada, but not in the US for some reason, which is annoying. But yeah, we're on almost everything. But I mean, you can watch it right now. Or you can also go to www.allrickbrussell.com, which will take you straight to the alternate page, and I'll have all the links of where to buy it there, too. But yeah, you guys rock. I'm Liz Manishal, I'm a writer, director, producer who has made two features, Bread and Butter and Speed of Life. I'm currently in development on 3,721 more. I'm a distribution consultant who used to manage the creative distribution initiative at Sundance, and I do sales. This week, we welcome writer, director Jason Horton on the show to talk about how he has created a sustainable life for himself as a filmmaker, which is like the most unique story possible. He talks about his transition from fiction to documentary filmmaking, how he's made over 40 documentary feature films in the last three years or so. After that, Ulrich and I play another round of The Game, where I ask Ulrich the question of the week. But first, Ulrich, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I'm very excited, you know, about the movie, the alternate, you know, being out into the world. You know, we're recording this w- uh, week in advance. So, I, you know, actually two weeks in advance of, of hearing this. So I, the movie's not even out yet in my real time, but it will be when you hear this. But yeah, it's just been really fun to promote it. And, you know, it's very exciting to see what happens. Who knows, like, what the success is going to be. But I'm very excited about it. I'm also extremely excited because I'm attached to a new movie. It's sort of unofficially, but, you know, officially enough where we have like weekly meetings set up between me, the writer, and our two producers. So we're working hard on, uh, you know, trying to package it together right now. So we've got the script rewritten to a way where we all like it, including me, which is great because when I read the first draft, I was like ready to cry because it was so depressing. It was so dark. It was the, one of the darkest things I ever read. And we were able to lighten it up bringing a lot of fun it's an action thriller so it's it's really exciting and it's an ensemble cast so basically right now what we're doing is we're trying to get four to five names that we can attach to this movie and then with that attachment we can raise the money and then you know kind of get an agreement with our with a distributor to to release the movie our new producer who i've, I've just met the last few weeks he's done this like three times in the last two or three years Amazing. so like he's got movies out there you know starring folks like you know eric roberts and Tom Berenger and, you know, Jed Nelson and who else is on some of his movies, Casper Van Dien, all these people. But he kind of wants to, to, you 
know, he doesn't want to make keep on making the movies over and over again with the same actors. So we're trying to reach out to some new people, kind of in that same realm, uh, you know, of, of of names. So we've got like a humongous list of uh, of actors that me and the writer have been putting together, and we've got a meeting in 20 minutes to talk about like who we think is really good and like kind of next steps. Like if if like it's enough if we build this deck out like with all these names, like is that going to be enough for him to to sell the movie to a distributor and like you know start raising the money, or do we actually need to get cast attachments? I feel like from my understanding with this producer, it's like sometimes he's had cast attachments, sometimes he hasn't. And it's just like, you know, just kind of checking availability and sort of seeing like interest, you know, from the actors and like that's sort of enough to like, you know, start the process. So, you know, we're not like in a super rush, but like, I mean, obviously I think he wants to make this movie as soon as possible, but I think we're kind of in a zone where we probably couldn't do it in 2022 anymore. Like it's a little late. I mean, we maybe we could shoot in December if we really wanted to, but the money would have to come like super fast. We'd have basically have to have it by the end of the month. So I don't, I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, that would be like insanely quick. But, you know, targeting 2023 maybe, you know, but this could be my next movie. We'll see. Fingers crossed. You know, like it, it kind of just depends. Like, like you're in the same game with a bunch of different projects. It's yeah. like, you know, you got to get the cast and the right people. They got to say yes. They got to like the project, you know, like we could go through like, you know, rounds and rounds and rounds of actors before we find ones that are willing to to join the project, you know, so like, we'll see, we'll see how it goes, you know, feeling pretty confident overall. Like, I mean, especially since this guy has done this so much recently, it feels like this could happen. So, so we'll see. But yeah, that's kind of what I'm doing. Um, What's going on with you, Liz? Well, that's like very beneficial to have a crew member who feels like they're in a rush. Like, that's good. Yeah. And it's like, because <laughs> the process is so slow and so tedious that unless you have someone, it's going to be you, of course, but this producer as well as a driving force reminding people to not give up on the project and <laughs> to keep going and being in a rush is not that bad right because uh, where you're land is going to be somewhere in the middle and if no one's trying to speed things up it's just going to take forever like it does for me <laughs> what are things <laughs> to talk about i've been getting quite a few emails from people about this horror anthology that i talked about a few weeks ago but it, i just wanted to say that it's still half baked and i have a few things that are that are forming, but it's not top priority for me. So if anyone's thinking of submitting an idea, don't don't do it yet until I know what it is, until I know what we're doing, because I don't know what we're doing. <laughs> but other than that, two weeks from now, this is fun. This is a fun game. Where will I be in two weeks? Right. Where will you be? <laughs> I don't know. I think we're, you know, this musical proof of concept that I've been talking about for a few weeks, we have, I think, our first cast attachment, and I'm going out to another talent today. And it's becoming more real. And I'm realizing that, yeah, you once you start saying things out loud, this is the theme for the week. Once you start saying things out loud, people hold you accountable. So like the whole reason the musical proof of concept is happening is because these amazing composers was like, were like, yeah, we'll volunteer on it. And here's a song, <laughs> wow. you know, and amazing. like as soon as we had this amazing song, I just felt like, well, I can't back out now. There's no fucking way. Right. So the same thing happens with every other project I do. It's like as soon as you say it out loud and you create these partnerships, there's a level of accountability that you have to rise to. So that's where I'm in right now. I'm trying to rise to the responsibility that I've created for myself by saying things out loud. But that's all that's going on. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Patreon because Patreon is how we keep the show going. So anyone who's listening, if you have a few extra bucks, think about giving it to our Patreon campaign, www.patreon.com slash podcast. We are actually, I think as of right now, 
now operating in the black, if we're just going to completely erase Ulrich's years of going into debt, making this podcast, if we were to wipe the slate clean, we're at a place right now going forward, we're in the black. And so wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great to... For like four four more months. (laughs) We'll see. See if it keeps going. But yeah, we're we're, we're, we're good good for now. Got you there. Maybe two more months. Would it be great if if a general soul were to think, wow, your editor needs a little, just a little bit more money because they're so wonderful. Or, hey, I need some more merch in my life. So that's where this money will be going to. You know, we're going to travel. We're traveling for the podcast this year. We'll we'll announce it later. We can't announce now. I don't think so. I don't think I think we have to wait until it's official. Um, I mean, you do what you want, but I think. I mean, it's kind of official. I mean, we got our tickets. So Liz is not ready. All right. Liz isn't ready, (laughs) but it's very exciting. It's very exciting, people. I can't wait to let everyone know what's happening. So like every dollar that a Patreon gives would be contributing to the expansion of the show. We'll just say that. Yeah. Eric's like in his seat right now, just like, wow, tell the world, people, <laughs> tell the world. But we'll bide our time, Eric. <laughs> also, we want to make sure people check out the International Screenwriters Association, which is an organization designed to connect writers with filmmakers through the programs they offer, like consultation courses, contests, their top 25 writers lists. Head on over to networkisa.org to sign up for free today. We love them. Without any more delay, here's our chat with Jason Horton. All right, jumping right in, Jason, can you give us the elevator pitch for Death Day? Oh, geez, gosh, it's been so long since I've done an elevator pitch for Death Day. It is about a troubled young girl who is killed over and over uh, each time losing a piece of her soul. Uh, How many days did you shoot the film? We shot about 22 days. What was the rough budget? The hard cost budget was about 65,000 and we had maybe 120 in deferment. And then how did you come up with the idea? I, I was working at a company. Well, I own my own company, Gas Money Pictures with a partner and we got this new office and the office building was just, it was incredible. It was two big giant buildings and we pretty much had the run of it. And we kept thinking, oh man, we got to shoot something in here. And I had a bunch of finished scripts, but none of them quite fit it. So I was just like walking around and thinking, well, a siege picture would work really good. A one location, like combined thriller. And so I kind of built Death Day around the location. Also, my, my mother had passed about maybe seven months before, which thematically led into a lot that was going on in the movie. How long did you spend working on it from that first idea to its eventual release? Not super long. I started, I conceived of it in October of, oh man, 2017. And then we shot in April of 2018. It was released towards the end of 2018. We shot my second feature, April of 2018. Sorry. Oh yeah. We were there both working at the same time. <laughs> That's cool. Going to all those projects you've, you've made, how hard, how difficult was this one? So I'll be uh, really, really honest about that. Death Day was the hardest, uh, most difficult shoot I'd ever done. It wasn't 100% because of the movie itself. I had a lot of 
you know, outside business things going on. We were originally supposed to shoot the movie in, um, I'm sorry, we were always going to shoot the movie in April, but I had an editing gig with a sci-fi channel company and I was editing all of their BTS. And that was supposed to start in May and they pushed their schedule up and it was just too good a paycheck to turn down. So I kept the gig. And so I was basically editing from 9 a.m. to about 7 p.m. And then we were shooting from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. And I pretty much did that for, you know, 22 days, you know, minus, you know, a couple of days off here and there. It was just, uh, yeah, physically, like emotionally, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. But if you own your own company, like what forced you into the physical production dates that you chose? Like, did, were you up against some other timeline to make Death Day? The, the thing about Death, Death Day was, so I, like I said, we built it around this location. The owner of the location was running out the main building starting in May, was it June that year to the Jim Henson company. They were getting ready to start shooting the Dark Crystal Netflix show. So I it was like, and they were going to be in there for a year. So it was like, shoot it now or shoot it never. And then as far as the editing gig, like when I say, oh, my own company, it's me and a partner. You know, we weren't like a you know conglomerate. It makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm going to keep on jumping in with like the 45 million questions I have. You were introduced to us by Clinton Cornwell, who just said like, you have to have Jason on the show. And he's the only person I know who makes a living as an independent filmmaker. And, and we talk to a lot of people and we ask every single person, how do you live? Like, mm. how do you sustain your career? So can you clarify? So are you making money solely from independent film? Yes. Yeah. I make my living off the exhibition of my features. At this point, I have produced or directed, I'm closing in on 70 feature films. Wait, seven zero? Yeah, seven zero. All of them are low budget. You know, I've, I've done movies for, you know, a few hundred bucks, you know, a thousand bucks. And, you know, I've done them up to 250,000. Over the last probably three years, I've done predominantly documentaries. And, you know, I do these, you know, really fast, really cheap. I can do them pretty much as a one man crew or, you know, I have a couple of people that shoot for me in different states sometimes. And then we just do like a rev split and I do all the post and distribution. And I probably have done like 35, 40 of those in the last three years. That That's really where like, thing, I mean, I was doing well off narratives, but it was like figuring out this documentary thing that really pushed me, you know, into where I didn't have to do freelance work anymore. So what's the process for the documentaries? Like, are you just deciding to make like whatever you want to make, like as far as the documentary goes, or do you have like a source that you're like supplying these documentaries to that they're giving you like things that they want content for? Or like, what is it? Yeah, I understand. No, I'm, I'm, to I'm totally making everything on spec. You know, I produce them myself. I put them out myself. I own them myself, you know, everything. Now I do work with distributors and, you know, I put out others through Film Hub, stuff like that. But yeah, it's all self-produced. And I, like, I started out, I never wanted to do documentaries at all. I, I like them, I watch them, but I had no interest in making them as a filmmaker. And, you know, the death day thing happened, you know, production was bad. I, I had some, you know, distribution woes on that, which we can get into. And, it, you know, it, it honestly didn't make money. Like that one didn't, like we lost, I still owe investors on that movie. And I was kind of, and it was such a bad experience. I was kind of like, I'm, I'm done filmmaking. Like, I'm just not going to do it anymore. A friend of mine had, 
he had been on me for a few years to try documentaries because he had been, you know, turning over a little bit with it. And and finally, I was kind of like, you know what, maybe maybe I'll try it. I have an acquaintance that owned a, a dog rescue in Las Vegas. And they had a pretty interesting story. And I you know, called her up and I said, hey, would you like to do a documentary on your dog rescue? And I went down there and spent about, I don't know, about a week with them shooting. And then, you know, I put it together like really fast, like a couple of weeks and put it out and wasn't really expecting much from it. I actually didn't do a distributor or anything. It was when Prime Video Direct was like, you know, still a you know big thing. So I put it out on Prime Video Direct expecting like, you know, 10 or 20 bucks for the month. And then it made like 1500 which, you know, it's not huge money, but I was like, wait a minute, maybe. And I, and I spent less than a month on it, you know, like, like probably a total of two, maybe three weeks. So I was like, eh, maybe I'll do this. So I just came up with a bunch of ideas. You know, I suffer from anxiety. I did a documentary on anxiety and interviewed a bunch of people about that. I did a Bigfoot documentary because I had a friend that was into that. That's like, like five or six real quick. Within like three months, I was starting to see returns from these things. And I was like, man, and if I could make one or two in a month, I could really like this could add up. So, you know, I did it for about two years. And, you know, I've had, I've had documentaries make as much as, you know, five and 6,000 a month. But, you know, then I have others that make, you know, five and 10 bucks a month. Is there a template that you're following? I mean, I'm, is it just like sit down interviews, archive all B roll, or is there, are you departing? And making, does the story define the form, so to speak, or, or are you doing the same thing? I usually let the interviews lead me. So I'll interview first. I will shoot B-roll with the people, you know, that I'm interviewing. And then I will get, you know, as much, as much video and picture footage as they have. And then I will supplement that with archival and stock footage. You know, the, the shooting process, you know, I, I usually don't spend more than three or four days, you know, usually no more than a day with the subject. And then I try to have a minimum of five interviewees and then, you know, put the B-roll and the edit together and then just, you know, keep it going. And I, I've been editing for a really long time. <laughs> for the movies that you're like getting $5,000 a month on, like how long is that lasting? Is that like for two months, three months, a year? Like what, what kind of returns are you seeing for these? Right. Well, what I usually find in, and this is, this goes across the board with, you know, like low budget films, whether they're narrative or documentaries, your first, you know, 60 to 90 days are usually going to be your peaks, you know, and you'll see on average a 40 to 50% fall off after the third month. So it's something with this that you have to keep feeding like the, the 5,000 one, I think it, it did, did 6,000 first month. I think it fell to maybe 4,000 second month. And then we were at like three. And then after that, it like it petered to like a thousand for the year. And this has been a couple of years ago, like to, to date, it still earns, I don't know, two or 300 a month at this point. Wow. That adds up though. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Especially if you have like, you know, 10 of them at the same time or yeah, yeah. Or 20 it's a, of them. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, the, this method is not for everybody. A lot of people listen to this and they'll be like, ah, oh, this is bullshit. I don't, you know, I, why would I want to do that? You know, you have to do so many of them to make, you know, any kind of revenue. But, I, you know, I like making movies and, you know, I've been doing it for 20 years and I've made bigger movies and, you know, I've made, you know, short term more money on some of them, but I, I didn't own a lot of that. You know, like I get paid to direct it and, you know, six months later, you know, like that's gone. Then I have to get my other gig. You know, I, I like ownership. I like entrepreneurship. And like, so I, I, 
to me, ownership is is key and having passive income. So, you know, and speaking of, you know, narratives, you know, once I started figuring out this model and started putting up more movies on Film Hub and working with indie rights, you know, I, I put up probably five or six of my older movies after the license reverted to me. And I, I make pretty good money on some of those, you know, and they're, you know, 10 and 15 years old, some of them. What's the lifestyle like? I mean, you just said you love making movies. So I understand that like anything that may be overwhelming or tough, you're probably enjoying yourself too. But are you sitting from a computer all day? Are you are you running from town to town shooting? Like what what is the day to day like? You know, it's not that bad. I mean, when I'm shooting a narrative, which, you know, I just finished one craving, which was pretty intensive. It was about the the, sh- the shoot period was only three weeks, but there was a really we did a crowd funder. So like that was really intensive. And that and the post on that's a, way more complicated than anything I've done. Typically, though, like with the the docs and stuff, I, you know, I don't do more than eight hour days anymore. Like I'd mentioned before, I've been editing for a really long time. I can edit fast. I, you know, I can spend, you know, five or six hours a day for, you know, a week and I can knock out one of these, you know, 70, 80 minute documentaries. And so that, that's pretty much what I do. And then as far as the shooting goes, I mean, honestly, in the last year, I haven't shot a lot of them myself. I've started working with more and more, you know, bringing in partners and collaborators. And, you know, we'll come up with, you know, the ideas together, you know, we'll solicit the interviews, and then I'll usually send them out, do the interviews. And then I just get the footage, edit it, promote it, distribute it. And then where are these movies playing? Like, is it kind of all over the map? Are there specific, like, release patterns for these? Yeah, it's all over. It started out, it was primarily Amazon, or at least that's where I was making most of the money. And then, you know, as Amazon started falling off, Tubi started coming up and they started taking more and more of them. Now I'm probably seeing the most money from Tubi, but Pluto has been coming up really well for me lately. I make good revenue on Hoopla. Um, actually, YouTube is starting to be a thing. You know, I have my own YouTube channel, which I monetized about two years ago. So I started releasing documentaries on there last year. So like sometimes I'll premiere a movie on YouTube and I'll leave it up there for three or four weeks before I'll do my film hub submission. And then when it widens out into other platforms, it'll have a second life. But you know, some, some of those do well. I have one called I Want to Believe that's made it's like a, a thousand a month, you know, for and that that did that for about six months. And then I have another one called Don't Call Me Bigfoot, similar, but not quite as much. And we just premiered one a week ago and I'm premiering another one uh, actually tonight. Wow. I have so many questions. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you for letting us kind of like attack you with all these yeah. economic questions. <laughs> no, no, it's no problem. That's that's mostly what I talk about on my YouTube <laughs> channel. So I'm, I'm very transparent about, you know, what I make and, you know, what the movies make or what they don't make in some cases. Well, I guess I'm trying to picture. So I get the volume strategy and I get the low overhead strategy. All of that makes sense, right? And then the YouTube monetization, you have your own podcast. Are we missing an income stream? Have you written like 45 novels that we don't know about? Like what, what, no, what no. else is I'll, there? I'll, I'll tell you what, when I, when I was working for Gas Money Pictures, when I, I keep saying working, when I was running Gas Money Pictures, I came across a friend. He was a filmmaker named, uh, oh shoot, you know what? I won't say his name. He, he doesn't like people to know. He, anyway, he was doing horror features and he had a back injury and he couldn't work on set anymore. And so he really liked writing. So he started doing all these self-publishing novels, you know, like, you know, and he would, this dude can rip out a novel a month. So like he spent a year, ripped out like 12 novels. One of them was a series, like a sci-fi for, you know, preteens. 
I forget what the other one was, but he started making some money on it. And it's a real similar model to you know what I ended up doing with the documentaries. Not always just kind of stuck in the back of my head because you know he is it's totally self-generated. Like he's writing it, he's doing his own covers, he's doing self-publishing through you know whatever the platform. I think it was Amazon at the time. He like he does better than I do with movies. You know, and I know not everyone can do that. A lot of people try and they fail, but it was like it just kind of like a, a switch flipped. You know, and it took me about a year to act on it, but I always remembered that. And it's something I've thought about myself, you know, especially with my YouTube channel, I I write my videos and then, you know, perform them by teleprompter. So like I've often thought about taking all that, compiling it and, you know, trying to make a book out of it, but I haven't done it. It's right there. It's right yeah, there. Totally. Totally. For your movies that aren't these documentaries, like the ones that you actually have more of a, a normal budget for, how are you raising the money for those? Like, is it personal like investment or are you, do you have equity investors you go to? Like, what's your process? You know, it's all, it's different movie to movie. You know, I did my first movie back in 2003. I was in college. It was called Rise of the Undead. And we made that movie for about $5,000 and we self-financed it, you know, credit cards. I, I did have a I worked as a part-time video assistant editor and I did talk the boss there into a couple of thousand dollars that he used to put into stuff every year. So he that a little bit when I moved to LA, you know, and I thought because I had this movie and it was, you know, out publicly, it was on DVD, it was in Blockbuster and all that. So I was like, I'm going to get to LA to be like, yeah, come direct our movies, you know, at, a, at like a year I couldn't get yeah, I couldn't get anything. I couldn't get a PA job, I couldn't get an editor, nothing. I was working at Starbucks again. I started getting a few assistant editor gigs and like shooting gigs. I owned a camera at the time, a DVX, Panasonic DVX, the 24P mini DV cam. One of the producers I was working for, we just really hit it off. I was shooting a comedy documentary for him. He asked me if I had any zombie scripts and I didn't, but I was like, you know, I could, I could write one. So I wrote a thing called Edges of Darkness with a partner of mine. And he ended up financing that for about 25000 like small, but he did it. And then from that, you know, because I, I finished it, it was released by Anchor Bay. Did, it did well. And a lot of other like, you know, lower budget producers, I would get calls to come, you know, direct or produce or write for them. So I did a really long string of movies for other people, which I had directed and that, you know, and these were budgeted between 20 and like 50, 60,000. And pretty much in that period, I, I think I self-produced maybe three features, which, you know, I still own. And then, you know, Death Day, I found, you know, we had maybe five or six different equity investors on that, too many. And Craving, I actually turned to crowdfunding and raised 60000 for it. In terms of models, like, how do I phrase this? Did you arrive at the model you're doing right now, the volume model, and the self, the entrepreneurial model, due to your own like proclivities, your own your own personal affinities on how to make content, or do you think this is the only way to make money? I don't think it's the only way. I, I think it's the right way for me. You know, I spent the first decade of my career, you know, chasing being, you know, like a, a, a studio director, making you know bigger movies, making movies for other people, making million dollar movies, and you know, not everybody's going to get there. You know, and, and at a certain point, I was like, you know, it's either going to happen or it's not. But you know, I've now directed you know whatever a dozen movies at the time, and you know, I didn't own. Most 
most of them. And I was you know, paid very little for making them. And, you know, I'm kind of like, and I've seen, you know, I've seen the numbers on some of those movies and like they're making collectively, you know, millions and yeah. I don't have any of that. So I started being like, I, I, I want to call my own shots. And on top of that, I did some editing for Fox for about a year back in 2016. I was doing promos and like concept trailers and stuff like that. And granted, it was my only big studio experience and I shouldn't, you know, blanket judge them, but it was such an awful experience that I was just like, I never want to work in that environment again. So I was like, I, I want to be my my own boss, call my own shots, do my own thing. And I don't want to answer to anyone. So that's that that's where I came from. Can you talk about what was so awful about that experience working for Fox? Like, was it just like, you know, bosses that are not listening to you or like, you know, you don't have any input, like you just have to do what everyone says. Like what, what were some of the things? No, it was honestly, it was abusive. And, and I'm not saying all Fox is like this. I don't know. I was just in a particular department and I had a, a boss that was, you know, I'm not a huge guy, but he was a real little guy with a small man complex. And he would, he was one of the people that like ruled by fear. So like every single thing you do, it's like, this is awful. Why would you do that? You know, it was, it was like, it was wow. very, very abusive. And, and on top of that, it was, you know, it was really strict deadlines. And like, I can, like, I was okay, you know, working on stuff and just, you know, taking directions and just doing what they want. But at a certain point, I'm like, you know, like I, I you, you have no, you're, you're just a, you're just an assembly line person. You know, you're like, you're, you're not being creative, you know? Right. It's horrible. Yeah. Pay was good, but, <laughs> but it was, it, I was miserable. I'm going to keep asking really personal questions that I shouldn't ask. That's fine. Do you have a family? Do you, are you part of supporting a family as well? Or is it? See that? Yeah, that's a, that's another thing that has kept me able to do what I've done through the lean years is no, I never, I never married. I never had kids. You know, I've, I have a girlfriend I date, but I've never, never been married. And so that has allowed me to, because, you know, my, my first year doing the documentaries, like, you know, there were months where I was making, you know, like a total of two or $3,000, you know? Yeah. So, you know, there's no way I could have handled a family on that. Maybe not in Los Angeles. Not in right? Los Angeles. No, no, no. <laughs> but so, yeah, it's, I, I'm, pr I'm very just like focused on my, my, my career and work. Yeah. Yeah. And going back to the documentary stuff. So, you know, you're saying that you were just doing them all yourself in the beginning, like you're just shooting them, going out, like the whole thing. But now like you have like a little bit of a team that you work with. Yeah. How are you coming up with the budgets for that? Are you basically just like spending as little as humanly possible to get them made? Or do yep. you like have a, that's it? <laughs> okay. Yep. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and, and, and we're talking very little money, you know, cause like most, most documentaries, most of the subjects either don't ask for or don't want, you know, money for it. And, and I, you know, the, the, and the few that do, it's usually pretty low. I think the most we've paid for an interview is like maybe $400, something like that. And then, you know, I own all the gear, either me or the partners that I'm shooting with, you know, I'm working with a guy now that Jeremy Nori, he's directed probably, probably about 50% of the docs that I've done. He went out and, you know, bought a new camera, bought the sound, like just he, he run when he shoots something it, like, it's just him, it's him and the people. 
And when I choose something, it's just me and the people. Wow. Can you talk a little bit about where the joy is for you? Like, I understand you love directing, but like, what is it that you love about directing that that like pushes you forward for every single project? Is it when are you most proud? Like, what is the project you're most proud of? And when can you describe that feeling? Yeah, yeah. And and it's it's totally different, like documentaries and narratives. So I'll I'll start with the documentaries. Like what, what I get out of the documentaries, and it wasn't apparent to me right at first. Like right at first, this was, and I know as I've been talking, this sounds just like a total like pragmatic, you know, like money grab thing. But, you know, I was I was attacking. I attack subjects from, you know, a positive viewpoint. I try to look for things that need help or need attention or the people are, you know, so passionate about their thing. You know, like, for example, I said the dog rescue was the first one I did. And so, you know, I did this dog rescue documentary and yes, it made me some money. But at the same time, like it brought people into that dog rescue and those people were so happy and like hearing back from them and how like how proud they were of it. And, you know, it was like that felt really good, like in a way that I had never experienced that from narratives. I mean, I've had people say, oh, yeah, the movie is great. It means a lot to me. It's cool. But like this meant something to them on multiple levels, you know, or I did another one called about cannabis and cancer. And it was about these uh, cannabis advocates that, you know, believe in, you know, using cannabis to treat cancer. And, you know, believe it or not, the people, they believe it. And they're super, super passionate about it. And and it's hard not to get caught up in that. That's the kind of stuff that I try to do. You know, I even mentioned the Bigfoot documentary. You're like, oh, Bigfoot documentary. But these people, it's the same thing. They're super passionate about it. And I don't, you know, I never do like, you know, exploitive stuff, you know, like I do a Bigfoot thing, but I don't make fun of them. You know, I take a real matter of fact approach to it. Like when I do the alien stuff or Bigfoot stuff or like life after death, I take really like this is why these people are passionate about it as opposed to, you know, this is real or this is fake or stuff like that. And and it's also what led me doing my YouTube channel for, you know, other filmmakers and talking about distribution and marketing and helping other filmmakers like maybe be able to get to making a living in a shorter period than what I did. And being of service, that feels good. And and I feel like in the documentary space that that's what it is. Like I'm I see it more as providing a service than a straight up artistic expression. Although there that is a component of it. But then in narratives, it's totally flipped. It's you know it's a hundred percent for me artistic expression. Like I said, after the experience on Death Day, I was pretty much ready to give up because it just it was not fulfilling. But you know I just got done directing Craving and going into that movie all the way up into the first day of production. I was like, this is definitely it. I am never going to direct another movie again. You know, the, the, you know, production headaches, the money, you know, even with the crowdfunding money, all of it, it was just, it, it, it was, I won't say a nightmare, but it was really, really tough up to production. And then I stepped on set that first day and started working with the actors again. And, you know, I, you know, I've grown over the years as a director and it just like, it felt really good interacting with them and then, and, and then, and figuring out how to work with people of different acting styles. And I, I feel like I'm craving too. It was like the first time where I felt really good at that and that felt great. So, you know, I need more money to do narratives, but you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I'll do another more after this. Do you think you'll go back to crowdfunding again for your next narrative? Or do you feel that there's other avenues out there that you can exploit to raise the budget for your next narrative feature? Right now, I'm not 100%. The crowdfunding experience was not horrible for me. And through all of the work I've done learning how to promote the documentaries, 
and learning how to promote my YouTube channel. I was pretty, I'm pretty good at the crowdfunding. So, I, you know, I, I, could, I don't think I could do multiple campaigns a year like, like some of these folks do. But, you know, I, you know, maybe next year I might feel like doing another one. Like what we'll see. And I'm also, to be 100% honest, I'm kind of waiting to see what craving does, you know, like financially, because, you know, and I hate to put everything on financials, but, you know, if, if the movies aren't really earning, do I really want to spend another year of my life working on another one? I'm not sure. Can we go into the death day reception that you alluded to earlier? And then, yeah, yeah. Wait, can you also explain, or does it have anything to do with Happy Death Day being in any way out into the world? No, no. Okay. Although I, well, I will, I, I'll, I'll start with that though. Okay. So the movie was called The Campus, and we were shooting The Campus, and I, I, I keep getting my dates mixed up, but I, 2018, I believe April of 2018, might have been 17, but I think it was 18. Anyway, it was six or seven months before Death Day, the Happy Death Day came out. And it was about, we started shooting maybe a week after that first trailer hit. And we were still called The Campus, not Death Day. And there are strong plot similarities. They both involve, you know, a blonde heroine that is killed over and over. It's in a Horace setting. There's even shots that look similar, you know, so like there, it looks similar. So, you know, I was doing gas money pictures. We had just went to Cannes to sell an animation show and I was super distracted and I let someone else handle the distribution of death of campus at that time. We ended up signing with a sales agent and honestly, I just didn't do my due diligence. We had a really bad experience. They sub-licensed it to another distributor. They took a, you know, an MG in exchange for signing a really bad contract. You know, like one of those, you know, like seven years, $50,000 sales cap. Oh God. We weren't going to see nothing. So it was, it was with them for about a year before I contacted the distributor directly because I found a, a loophole in the contract and I was supposed to have a say over the distribution contract that they signed and they never ran it by me. So I was able to get out of that contract and the distributor begged me to leave it with them. They said they would forego all of their sales fees. The, the ones that had already been spent had already been spent. But from there out, it would be straight, you know, rev split with me and they gave me a favorable deal. So I, I, I did it. But the movie had already been out for, you know, a year and a half. So it had pretty much done what it was going to do at that point. So this, you know, we and we never saw anything from that initial like run, you know, so like, you know, it made whatever 40 or $50,000, but, you know, we didn't see any of that. Right. You know, it was it was all mixed up in those, you know, the crooked sales agent and, you know, a distributor with a bad contract. And, and I, like I said, I had many different investors and, you know, there was one group of investors where it was kind of like crowdfunding. I had a producer who had basically went out to his, his friends, a lot of his friends and family and had raised, you know, two or $3,000 a piece. So there was like, I don't know, 10 or 11 of them. And so, you know, you had that group of people and, you know, a lot of them weren't rich people. They want their money back. You know, we had another investor that was $25,000. He wants his money back. You know, I had put in about $15,000, like some of my money back. It, it was a nightmare that I'm still dealing with this, to this day. When did they change the title? Oh, yeah. When the sales agent signed with the distributor and again, 
without my input, without my knowledge, without my permission, the title was changed to Death Day. And they did it 100% to piggyback off Happy Death Day. So the, yeah. between that and the plot similarities, like there's no way I can convince people that it wasn't like an asylum ripoff, but whatever. <laughs> and then from that original MG that your sales agent negotiated, did you guys see any of that money? And what was no. that MG supposed to be? Do you know? No, it was, I, this is, and I am, I am conjecturing here. I do not know this for a fact. It, the, the MG was a thousand dollars. I know that for a fact. What I believe happened is this sales agent, they took many movies to this distributor, uh, you know, had a standing, you know, deal with them. And I'm almost positive that they were, that the sales agents were purposefully signing, you know, the, the boilerplate contract without negotiating at all in exchange for a small MG. Terrible. That's such a small MG for that. Well, that, that, that's why. Yeah, yeah. But what I'm saying, though, because so, you know, for very little effort, you know, it's like a thousand dollars, thousand dollars. And, you know, and they have in their contract with me, which again, I just I didn't look at it. There is a clause where they can take up to a thousand dollars for their effort. <laughs> and, and it just so happened that the MG is a thousand dollars. That's so tacky. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Scam, scamola. Jeez. And the, the really the thing that I beat myself up about over it is at that point, I knew better. Like I knew, like I knew better. Like I, I wasn't like some green filmmaker in my first movie. Like I knew better. And I just, I, I was too distracted with other things. And I, you know, I let it, I let it happen. You've also made 70 movies. Like you were probably <laughs> making like five different movies at the exact same time. Right, right. That's my theory. I want to know, I mean, you're an expert when it comes to marketing and distribution. And also you've grown your own audience through your YouTube channel. So are you willing to share some of the takeaways that you also share on your YouTube channel with regard to how do you present your film in the best light in distribution? Yeah. You mean like how to get a distributor or how to market the film? Well, marketing is what I'm more interested in. Okay. Yeah, yeah. The best marketing education that I ever got was so right around campus time, maybe a little bit before it, I was considering crowdfunding. So I paid for this crowdfunding course by the Kickstarter guy, Justin Giddings. Yeah. And that is the best marketing course I've ever had in my life. And you know, it's all focused around crowdfunding. But if you think about it, all all crowdfunding is is trying to bring people in to a site and get them to take an action. And so it's it's not much different than you know trying to promote a movie. So like I learned so much nuts and bolts about marketing. And then the other thing, so I didn't do the crowdfunder there, but I did another one for 16 bits for some friends of mine. I helped run it. And what that really solidified for me was, you know, I had the nuts and bolts stuff, but the big thing in marketing is is finding and connecting with an audience and, and not just an audience, but the right audience. Like I, I think filmmakers, one of the biggest problems with most independent filmmakers is they're just trying to like put look at my thing. It's like it's really cool, but they don't know who their audience is and they don't know how to reach that audience and they do not know how to appeal to that audience or like where that audience is or how to find them. And 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 I and I really didn't either early on in my career. But as I started doing, you know, the YouTube channel and, and also the other thing where I learned a crap ton about marketing was watching these like uh, your YouTube gurus, like grow your YouTube channel. People like uh, Brian G. Johnson or gosh, their names are escaping me right now. But there's like three or four I was watching. 
And like they talk a lot about, you know, doing stuff instead of like just for yourself, but you're doing stuff, you know, for your audience. And they like, what does the audience expect and meeting audience expectations and those things like all kind of coalesced at the same time in my brain while I was starting to do the documentary features. And now I had this thing to experiment with all this stuff with. And I just got better and better at it to where, you know, now I kind of have my, you know, little steps that I do almost mechanically, you know, through every movie with the docs, you know, I, I try to pick subjects that have some kind of, you know, niche following or, you know, like I, I use Facebook a lot, you know, because of my age and like, that's my, that's my social media. So like I go into Facebook and if I'm thinking about doing, I'll just go back to the dog rescue. I was going to do a dog rescue documentary. So I started joining dog rescue groups and, you know, I, at first I wasn't promoting my movie. I was just kind of reading comments. I would, you know, ask some questions, respond to other people's comments. And it's like, I got a feeling for what these people respond to. And and more importantly, in watching other people and looking at other posts that were getting interaction, because on social media, everything's about interaction. So I follow this group and I'm like, these kind of posts get people talking. So how do I, you know, co-opt that kind of post and somehow, you know, involve my movie in it? Yeah. And through stuff like that, it really helped grow that. So like that, that yeah. that's what I do. And then in creating, you know, the, uh, you know, a ton of promotional material, like I used to back in the day, I was like, you just finish a movie, you do your trailer and your poster and that's it. Right. I mean, not, not anymore. <laughs> You know, you need at least three trailers, at least, you know, and then you need, you know, clips from your movie. You need, you know, short clips like 30 to 45 seconds for reels and, you know, Instagram and not now TikTok. You need, you know, longer, like three to five minute clips from your movie that are a little more self-contained that you can put up, you know, on YouTube and promote there. And you can do that on Facebook now as well. And you need you know, behind the scenes stuff. If you're trying to build a career as a filmmaker, and I'm not saying everybody's got to go out and be a filmmaking brand or anything, but you got to get good at talking about it. You know, so like you, you do podcasts and you do interviews and, you know, you, you try to build, you know, your brand around it so that people follow your stuff. And th- that's pretty much how I attack my, my marketing now. So going back to your business and your sustainability, how, how are you paying out yourself? Like, are you, do you have a salary that you give yourself? Or are you just taking a cut of what you make per month and like splitting it up with your partner? Or like, what does this look like for you on a sustainability? Like, is this just like, it's a machine, it's just going and I just collect monthly? Or are you actually like paying yourself for your time? Yeah, no, it's I like I make anything that I make off it is off the back end. Like, you know, I'm not like raising money for the documentaries anyway. I'm not raising money for these and paying myself. If I make anything from it, it's when the movie makes money. So when I have those that make, you know, 10 bucks, which some of them do, I don't make nothing off of it. But then when I have one that does, you know, the four, the thousand, or even one that makes 500 a month over a year, like those are where I make my money. And then, yes, I have a revenue split with the different partners. And that can go from, you know, anywhere from, you know, 15 to 50%, depending on what's going on. Mm, nice. And then what does your lifestyle look like? I mean, are you, you working every day or do you like kind of set your own schedule? Like, are you just sort of relax, like do whatever? Do you do a nine to five thing where you're like at your desk, like eight hours a day, like doing your business stuff? Like how, how is your life structured? So I, tr- I try to work Monday through Friday. 
you know, for six to eight hours. You know, I, I say eight hours, but I, I rarely work eight anymore. And I try to do that five days a week. But because I am so, you know, like self-contained and a lot of it is from my computer and at home, you know, I'd be lying if I said almost every day I don't do a little something. But as far as like straight setting down and I'm going to work today, I try to keep it to Monday through Friday, you know, in eight hour increments. Nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. I have a friend who's a freelancer and like he basically refuses to get a full-time job because he does not want to have the yeah. lifestyle where he has to answer to someone. So I was just curious, like, it seems like you're kind of doing something similar where you just set your own hours and do what you have to do to keep things, keep the lights on, you know? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. I don't know if this is a question. Do you have any thoughts on emerging filmmakers today and their expectations for their careers? I guess I just would be curious how you react to filmmakers who are disappointed by their lack of sales in their films or their lack of lack of a like a long tail to their career because it's so difficult. I'd be curious if you dispense yeah, yeah. advice or Oh totally. Yeah. And and I want to start this by saying like I was that person, you know, the, like 10 years ago. You know, I I was I did have, you know, sky high expectations. And and I don't want to lay out a, a thing where I'm, you know, telling people to like lower your expectations and settle for something less. Like I really like what I'm doing, you know, and, and when I run my channel and tell people like how to do it, I'm, I'm not saying that this is for everybody because it is not. There are people that would not be happy doing what I'm doing, but I, I like it. But I, I think that overall, yeah, there's a, there's a huge lack of education in what movies actually make. And, and I'm not even just talking about like these little tiny movies, like movies at a hundred thousand dollars and two hundred thousand dollars. Like we're all in the same boat. Like there, there are two hundred thousand, two hundred and fifty thousand dollar movies out there, like right now that are making five and ten dollars a month. And not all of them, but it like it can it yeah. can happen. You know, one thing that I I really wish, and I you know, it sounds a little bit like victim blaming, but you know, filmmakers got to understand that you are not entitled to make money on your movie. You know, like a, your movie is. Or I'm sorry, let me rephrase that. Your movie is not entitled to make money. You know, just because you made it, it, it doesn't mean it. Like the world owes it money. You know, or the world owe, or the world owes you an audience. You have to get out there, and today more than ever, you have to get out there and work for your audience. You have to get out there and find your audience. You can't just you know, make your little masterpiece and put it out and yep, it, people are just going to discover it. It just doesn't happen. I'm not saying it never happens, you know, because every, every time I say that, somebody says, well, Robert Rodriguez did this or Kevin Smith did that, <laughs> you know, but those guys, even then, like they were still like, you know, one in a million, you know, they, there was a concentrated period where there was quite a few of them, but it was still like what, you know, you could name maybe half a dozen or a dozen and how many filmmakers were out there making movies at that time, you know, and, and I refuse to believe that at least not a certain percent of those filmmakers we never heard of were not doing good work. You know, they had to be, you know, it's just the, the people that make it like on that level, like they win the lottery. They're, they're, they've, they've got lucky. I'm not saying that they're not talented or didn't deserve it, but there is an element of luck to that kind of success. You know, if that is what you're chasing and, and it's that and only that, odds are it probably won't happen. Yeah. You know, so I, I take a more pragmatic approach myself. I appreciate that. I think 
Uh, Arik, do you have time for one more question? I have one more. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, I probably should ask this way earlier, but what's your relationships to film festivals? Do you, do you play that game at all? Like, have you played the fest- film festival game? And like, what's your what's your take? Like, do you feel like filmmakers should be going that route for everything? Or is it only for certain films? I think it's for certain films. And I honestly couldn't even tell you what <laughs> what kind. I have friends that and acquaintances <laughs> that do film festivals. And they they speak very highly of them. You know, the DP that just shot my last movie, her and her partner do film festivals all the time. And they talk about how, you know, they've met so many of their connections through it, you know. But as far as going out and finding distribution or like, you know, making making some kind of deal or getting some kind of money from it. I, 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 unless you're in like Sundance or something. And from what I hear, it's pretty much impossible to get into Sundance unless you have some kind of connection. So I, I, I've just never really messed with it that much myself. I don't have anything against it, but I, I, I don't think it's a path to distribution. All right. Well, jumping into our final questions, what's the first film you made and how do you feel about it now? First film was called Rise of the Undead. I think it's pretty bad, but I, I, I you know, it, it's, it's better than Stone's first movies. <laughs> and, and it got me started. So, you know, it's cool. What's the best filmmaking advice you've ever received? Mm, gosh, that's a good one. Man. Uh, oh, man, I'm totally blanking. If only bad advice is coming up, you can share yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, be- the best filmmaking advice I, I got was, and it's kind of a personal thing, but they, they told me to get out of my own head, to, to, you know, think more about other people and less about yourself. What's the worst filmmaking advice you've ever received or heard or, or dispensed or whatever? <laughs> <laughs> to, that if you make a movie under $50,000, get yourself a ten or $12,000, like, B-level star. <laughs> <laughs> oh man that's so funny agree agree yeah agree <laughs> yeah i asked my producer that question he's like no don't yeah. do that <laughs> yeah, nah. Nah. do you have a goal as a filmmaker my, my goal is to just I, I honestly now i i've my goal is always to make a living doing what i'm doing which which i am my goal now is to just increase the breadth of what I'm doing. Like I, like I, I'm really happy like where I am with the documentaries, but I would like to make them a little better. I, I would like to not have it be, you know, 50% stock, you know, like I, I would like to be able to, you know, get on bigger platforms with them and stuff like that. And not for recognition myself, but just to get more eyeballs on them. And, and, and I'd like to do some like longer form, not as far as the runtime, but as far as like, you know, I'd really like to spend like six months with a subject, you know, and, and follow it. And like, that would be awesome or a year, you know, but like at this level, you, you just can't afford to do that, you know? And then with narratives, you know, I would honestly, I just like more money. I mean, the biggest budget thing I ever did was 250,000 and I only won. And I'd like to, I'd like to do more at that or above, you know, like I, I'm really happy with how craving turned out, but I mean, I would have loved it to have been, you know, double the budget, you know, and spent more time. If you could go back in time, what's the piece of advice you'd give yourself? Own your own content, like have ownership. If it means taking a hit early on and making less money, like do so. If I would have started what I'm doing now, 15 years ago, I'd be very wealthy right now. Last question. 
is making movies hard. Yes. Like the, the physical act of it to me, not so much, but it's, it's very like emotionally and creatively draining and it can, it can be physically too. But I, I like, I think the, the, the actual act of it, I think it's the, I think it's the emotional stuff that goes with it that makes it so hard. And, and then, you know, the distribution and marketing stuff. You did it. You survived the gauntlet of making movies is hard. <laughs> can you shout out your podcast, your YouTube channel, like tell people where to go to support you? Yeah, you can pretty much find me anywhere. If you look up the J Horton, T-H-E-J Horton. My YouTube channel is named that. My podcast is named that. I am go by that on social medias. Are you a writer with a great screenplay just sitting on your desktop? Are you looking for written analysis of your work by experienced creatives? Are you trying to get industry professionals to read your work, but you don't know how to reach them? Then enter the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition. Created by veteran screenwriter Gordon Hoffman, the Blue Cat Screenplay Competition has helped unknown writers launch their professional careers for over 25 years. This year, the Blue Cat Screenwriting Competition will award $18,500 in cash, and everyone who enters will receive written analysis on their work, and getting feedback on your script is worth, like, a lot. The deadline to enter is October 30th, but if you miss it, you could still catch their late deadline on December 11th. Check them out on the social medias at Blue Cat Writers on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. So stop waiting to be discovered and send your feature screenplay, TV pilot, and short film script to Blue Cat today. Alric, what do you remember about our chat with Jason? I remember it was kind of incredible that he made so many movies. Like, how in the world could you make 40 documentaries in three years? I don't know. He did it. Somehow. Is nuts. I, I was just really kind of blown away by his whole approach. It was interesting because I was like expecting like for his narrative filmmaking for there to be like a little bit more like kind of surprise of how he made these movies. But uh, in the end, it was more like he just sort of followed the same path that we all do, like raising money, crowdfunding, all that stuff. But then when the documentary thing came around, it was like that was like the magic where it's like yeah. he figured out a way to make documentaries like for a certain budget level where it would always be profitable. And then he made so many of them Gosh. that there is like no way that he couldn't come up, uh, uh, you know, on top in the black or whatever. So, yeah, that's what I remember the most was just like his work ethic and then figuring out how to do it so amazingly. Well, and he came up as a guest because Clinton Cornwell, friend of the show, recommended him and was just so impressed by his model that he thought it'd be worth us digging in a little deeper. So I wanted to shout out to Clinton and thank you for that. Yeah, I remember that metadata is really important. It was this idea of like subject matter <laughs> and metadata. Like, yeah, I guess Bigfoot or Sasquatch would be really popular online. You know, like adorable puppies would be very popular <laughs> on streaming. Like it just it makes a lot of sense the subjects that he chooses to focus on and then of course this idea of, of low overhead with the fact that he does so much on every project and then finally like I always like to talk about balance and family and it's like you know you can definitely do it if you're a caretaker you can be an artist if you're a caretaker but you your calendar is freed up a little bit more and it sounds like that may be uh, another reason that he is able to be so prolific which was really interesting to hear someone admit yeah totally amazing but without further delay we have a we have an edition of the game Ulrich we have an edition of the game yeah. do you want to say the game it? thank you yeah. Yes. All right. the, the game. <laughs> For those listening, our producer Eric Tom sets up an indie production challenge. And Ulrich has not seen this. He's not aware of what I'm about to put in front of him. And he has to decide how he would handle this in, on his production. So, Ulrich. 
you're three days into a 17-day shoot and a major investor drops a bombshell on you. They're going to pull the funding unless you cast their granddaughter as one of the leads. This person's investment is one-third of the entire film's budget. You see her tape and she's not very good and certainly doesn't fit the part. Do you, by the way, that's multiple choice, do you cast her and keep the money? Two, not cast her and try to find the money while shooting the film, which he likes to remind us includes shooting 12-hour days and then making phone calls, taking meetings after your shoot day. Three, rewrite the script on the fly, making it a much smaller budget. Or four, other. Please explain what other plan you have. (laughs) What do you do, director? What do you do? Okay, so here's my solution. So if you have an investor who's already committed and you're already searching the movie and then he drops his bombshell on you, which first off would probably never happen. They would have told you beforehand that they need their daughter in the movie for them to sign on. But let's just say like, you know, for sake of argument that this is what happens. You just need to turn on the charm with your with your investor, and hopefully you can hear the screaming in the background too much. You can totally hear it. Oh no! <laughs> so basically, <laughs> you. <laughs> So yeah, so basically you go to your, your investor and you say, okay, well, I think your daughter is like a fantastic actor, really excited about this idea of getting her in the movie. It'll be really fun. I don't know if it's at this point, it's really appropriate to replace her in the lead role because we already started shooting with this actor. They're really great. You already proved them. They're fantastic. But I think, what we what about this? So we take this and you basically invent a new character, you know, for the daughter to play. Mm-hmm. You give them at least like five scenes, let's say, or like, you know, you know, a good like two to three pages of dialogue spread out across the movie, maybe a little bit more. You really like give them something flattering that really works for them as a person. You know, you write it for them. You play into their strengths as a human and as an actor. And then you really highlight them in that way. You make sure it's going to be something where they could be put into the trailer, where they have a key part of the movie that like really like that, that they get to play off the leads. Like if you have stars in the movie, especially make sure to write the, the character for the daughter of the investor into the all the scenes with all the stars so they get to act off of Eric Roberts, for instance, or, you know, whatever, Jeff Fahey or whoever you have, you know, like you just get them to be intermingled, Brad Pitt, you know, <laughs> with uh, with the main parts of the movie. And then I think that would really help get the, the investor to be on board. But you basically, you have to do a lot of work. You're going to have to work late nights. You're going to have to do what Eric said in, in one of his scenarios. And like, you're going to have to really put the extra time in, like, after shooting hours to, to figure out how this is going to play into what you already have worked on, especially you've already shot three days. But there's definitely a story solution which will work. And as long as the, the investor is a reasonable person and you really sell them on the idea that you're constructing for their for their, their daughter, I think you're going to have a win. But I don't know. What do you think, Liz? What would you do in that scenario? Yeah, I think it matters whether this film is the labor of love or is a director for hire situation where you signed on board and you've just been developing for a, a little bit, right? If it's like your heart on a plate, then my instinct is like, no, you just get out, right? You just like, you delay production, you fundraise another way and you you put a moratorium on it. And I think what you, your solution is fantastic. I think just an alternative would be you contractually say that you'll put her into the shooting draft of the script, but you cannot guarantee she'll make final cut. And you oh. script something there where it's like, you will shoot her, you'll get the opportunity of her coming on set, but then you rewrite, you either write an additional role, which is what you're proposing, which is great, or you rewrite the character so that she's less important or there's another 
another character that services the same goal that she did or whatever it is so that if you had to cut her down, you could cut her down. But either way, if this is like a homegrown film where it's made with love and sweat and toil, uh, this just spells out danger to me, right? (laughs) It's like, no, don't go. And I've had similar situations that I've run into before. And I even wrote an entirely new character for someone who wanted their son in in my first movie. And then he didn't like the character, right? So then you're like, okay, where am I? Like I'm shoehorning this and it doesn't work. Maybe that's not what should happen for your, you know, the film that you adore more than anything. Right. I like your, I like your solution where you like, you know, you, you come to them like with a less than ideal scenario of what they want, but you just like, you know, you kind of come to them honestly and be like, Hey, well, like, this is what I can offer you. You know, she's going to have footage for her reel. She's going to be in this, you know, she, she'll probably be in the movie, (laughs) like, like sell that way, but there's a chance she might not be, but worst case scenario, at least she's going to have something that she can put on her reel. That'll look really good on her resume and like, blah, blah, blah. So like you're, you're, you're kind of like a little bit more, you know, I'm a little sneakier. I'm a little meaner. More sneaky, more, more suave than me. I'm more like, yes, sir. Whatever you'd like, (laughs) sir, madam. Yes. Your daughter can be in the movie and they will be in the movie and I'll make it work. (laughs) And maybe that's also ego to think that I can make anyone good, you know, in a movie, which um, is not always true. (laughs) Or talents or talent. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But yeah, no, that was a good one. I like that one, Eric. People tell us, is this, is this as interesting as it is for us or is this boring as all hell? Let, Let us know. We'd like to know. Eric thinks it's boring. I I don't think it's boring. I think it's fun. I like it. <laughs> I yeah. like it way more than news. I hate talking about the news. Oh, oh. my news. So yeah, TriStar Home Video went out of business. What does that mean for the industry? Avon Svod uh, stock market. That's what. What's we talk better, Avon Svod or should we just go all our movies onto Netflix? It's like yeah, no. What? This is stupid. If it was so lucky to get onto Netflix, that would be the answer to the question. Anyways. You can send us your question, comment, or suggestion, or to let us know if you hate or love the game. The game. The way that we do, you can send all those things to podcast at mickeymoviesishard.com. Or if you really, really like the show, you can leave us a review on iTunes, which would be amazing. You can also check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at MMIH Podcast and YouTube at Mickey Movies is Hard Podcast. The other thing that you absolutely, absolutely have to do is to, to check out Jambox.io. They're a new royalty-free music and sound effects company with an emphasis on high-quality cinematic cues. I've used them for a couple projects, for my trailer, for the alternate, and also for a short film I edited for uh, one of our listeners, which was really fun. Their composers have worked on soundtracks for Hollywood level films, working with director- directors like Michael Bay and Martin Scorsese, and they even offer customized plans to fit your needs, which is pretty great. So go over to jambox.io and you can sign up using our code Podcast and get a 20% discount today. But thanks to Jason Horton for coming on the show. Thanks to our editor, Jeff Reimut, for doing the editing. And thanks to our producer, Eric Toms, for being incredibly awesome and coming up with such fun questions for us for the game. It's really fun. And thank you all for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Is being a dick. Hold on, I have to quick. Being a dick. How dare you, QuickTime? Jeez. I have. We trusted you. I know.